Um, how's everybody doing? Okay, all right. I didn't hear a lot of that through the mask, but I'm, I see some thumbs up, so that's good. It is, I have heard that it is impolite to speak about religion and politics in, uh, in you know, good company. Have you, have you heard that? Um, we're going to do both today. We're going to break, we're, we're knocking down barriers. Now, don't leave, nobody leave, because sometimes when you even just mention the word politics or talk about the concept of politics, it just, it gets people riled up because they don't know what you're going to say, and, and honestly, they're afraid that you're going to say something that dis- disagrees with them. Like, you guys would be totally happy for me to preach about politics all day as long as I said things that you agreed with. You, I'd get a lot of amens and, you know... But you're worried that I might say something that sounds like I'm supporting the other guy or the other party, and it just makes people nervous. Um, So I don't want you to leave, but I want you to know that Jesus got political. He really did. And I don't know that we realize that because it was first century politics, and that's not our ballgame. But he got political. The things he said, the things he talked about, they were statements that that were taken in a political way. Now, we know Jesus was kind of above all that, but it was still political content. It was things that got people riled up, and he had something to say about first century politics, and he has something to say about 21st century politics. And we, it's, we, it's important that we understand. We're in a weird season of, of, of politics. Now, some of you have just tried to tune it all out. I know that. You tried to tune it all out, and you're just so annoyed. You're like, man, I came to church. I didn't want to hear about this today. But we've got to talk about it because politics, and and maybe let me just start with the conclusion, okay? Let's start with the conclusion just in case you guys are a little nervous, like, where is this going? Is he going to be wagging a flag? Did I say that right? (laughs) Of some politician at the end of this service. Let me just start with the conclusion so you know where we're going, and then we're going to wind our way back. So here's the conclusion. If you are truly interested in a better country, and that could be America, that could be Ecuador, that could be Colombia, that could be Purdue, that could be uh, Purdue, Peru, that could be Germany, it could be anywhere. If you're truly interested in a better country, then for disciples, it is incumbent on us to be better citizens of a different country. If you're interested in a better country here, it's incumbent on us to be better citizens of a different country. I want you to get a word picture uh, in your mind with me. I want you to imagine life is like a small sailboat on the ocean. And uh, normal, everyday life, just it brings waves. I mean, this is an, an analogy as long as there's been sailing. But life brings waves. You know, it's things like parenting and finances and health and jobs. It's just, that's the waves of life. That's the ups and downs of life. And we've got to figure out where's the wind coming and how to get, you know, our stern or our bow or whatever the right term is into the right spot so we don't get capitalized. That's the way, that's life. That's life. In 2020, in March, the USS COVID came storming through and in, we we're in its wake and we were rocking back and forth and people were like, I don't know what's going on. They were grabbing onto, grabbing onto the life preservers. They were a little bit nervous about, is my future going to be okay? Is my family going to be okay? My economic health, my, my, my actual health, I mean, are we going to be okay? And so it just knocked everybody for a loop. And people were starting to get used to that. They were starting to understand how you navigate a pandemic. Then it seems like, I know it's 
been going on for the last four years, but it seems like about six weeks ago, the ocean liner election 2020 came storming through, and it caused another big, huge wake, and on top of the, the pandemic wake, and it just made people just freak out. They thought the boat was going to get swamped. They're worried that like their future, their livelihood, their, their, their family's future is going to go under unless somebody does something about it. And into all that chaos walked two candidates. And both these candidates said, vote for me, and I will calm the seas. That's what they said. And many Christians heard that and said, that's what I got to do. If I want a stable future, if I want a stable future for my family, for my health, for my economics, I got to vote for that guy. That's what they placed their hope in a candidate. And they are hopeful that after November 3rd, the candidate that wins, everything will be calm and be back to normal and be the way it's supposed to be. That's where a lot of people are. Here's why it's a mess right now. We don't, we don't want to talk about this a long time, but here's why it's a mess. Here's why your Facebook is ugly and divisive, and here's why you've had to hold your tongue at certain comments, and here's why it's, uh, it feels like everything has a political undertone. It's because when you buy into, or when any buy, anybody buys into an ultimate political solution for their life, then anybody who opposes them is like they're trying to sink the ship. If you buy into a political solution for your life, your future, your hope, your family, then when somebody comes along and says, well, I'm going to vote for this guy, you're like, well, that guy's trying to scuttle the ship. And then it creates tension and conflict and fear and paranoia. Everything's a mess because the other side is pro-sinking ship and your side is pro-saving lives. And both sides think that. And so we've got this huge, weird, current mess. Nobody, I have not met one person yet that is looking, that is, is, is glancing over the political landscape and saying, this is great. Everything's awesome. Everything's wonderful. I love this. It's just so much fun. Nobody is saying that. Everybody's saying this is ridiculous. This is horrible. This is a mess. But I don't know that everybody actually recognizes the extent of the problem. Here's the problem, the way I see it, take it or leave it is that politics are disrupting discipleship. Politics are disrupting discipleship. It's messing people's faith up. Because the things that they're supposed to be playing or placing in Christ, in their relationship with God, are now being taken and they're being placed into like a political platform, a political ideology, or a candidate. Politics are disrupting discipleship. Now, you don't have to agree with that necessarily, but let me tell you, as I speak with ministry friends, there are so many friends who are like, there. some of them, some of whom are on the verge of leaving ministry because of politics that has invaded their churches. Now, so far, so good with us. I'm not on the verge of leaving ministry, at least I, I hope. Uh, but they're, they're just like, they're saying, I, I don't know if I can handle it anymore. Every time I do something, somebody assumes it has political motives or political undertones, and it doesn't. There's no innocent good faith statements anymore. I mean, everything has been politicized, and it's just crazy and it's ridiculous. Eight months ago, eight months ago, Christians were all together in a room. We were all, a bunch of us, we had 250 people in this room eight months ago. And I don't know what songs we sang, but maybe we were singing, bind us together, Lord, bind us together with chords that cannot be broken. And now you have blocked some people right here in this room on Facebook. Why? Politics. 
because they're trying to sink the ship. And you're, I'm pro-life. I'm pro-ship being, I shouldn't say pro-life because that, oh boy, that has undertones. I'm pro-not sinking the ship and they're pro-sinking the ship and we cannot, how can you? Let me say, I think we do agree on some things. Here's where we do agree. I have heard people on both sides of the political spectrum say the same thing. Three statements. They all agree on. Everybody says these. How can you call yourself a Christian and vote for... You fill in the blank. I've heard it both ways. Here's another thing people are all saying, no matter what their political views. If people don't vote for my guy, then there is no hope for the country. Maybe a little dramatic, but that's what they're saying. This is what they're all saying. also saying. Sure, our guy isn't perfect, but he is way better than that other guy. Doesn't matter which side you're on. Both sides are saying the same thing. So we do agree on some things. And I want to be fair because this is important in a room like ours. The extremes are more extreme. But I think there's a lot of us who feel like we are kind of, not, not that we're like ideologically in the middle, that we have ideas and opinions and thoughts, but we don't feel like we're extreme. We don't feel like we're those voices that need to be blocked on Facebook. Some of you might be. But most of us feel like we're kind of cro- caught in a crossfire between people that we're like, how in the world did this happen that people I, I theologically agree with, I'm so politically divided from? How did that happen? How did we get here? Now, I don't, like I said, I think most of us are just, a lot of us, maybe you don't have to say amen, I don't know, uh, but I think a lot of people are confused, and I don't mean politically confused, I just think that they're just like, I don't know what's going on, I don't like this, I don't like the fact that, that and I mean, I don't even know, some of you may not even know who to vote for, you don't know, because one person makes this argument, you're like, that sounds pretty good, and then you hear the opposite, argument. well, that sounds pretty good, maybe some of you are confused. I think most of us are confused, tense. I think a lot of us are exhausted, just tired, tired of it. How many of you have just can't get on Facebook right now because it's exhausting to be so disappointed in fellow Christians? And then I think a lot of us are sad. And I want to say this is the thing I think is most tragic. And uh, again, you know, this is me. This is my opinion. But I, it does seem, and I, I hope I'm not overselling it, but it does seem like our current cultural moment especially political, but other things as well. Our current cultural moment is bleak, and it's it's a little ugly, and, and it's dark. And against that backdrop of bleakness and darkness and ugliness, Christians could have shone brightly. We could have looked so good. We could have been full of grace and humility, and we could have just shared, you know, patience and kindness right and left. And bottom line is, we didn't do that. We got caught up in all of that. But I'm here to say, even though there's only two days left in this current political situation, there still is a chance for you and I as disciples to shine brightly against this dark backdrop of our current cultural situation. We, there's still time. In fact, let me tell you, Tuesday is going to be pretty bleak for some people. On Tuesday, statistically, about 40% of the people in this room or in our state or in our country are going to be pretty upset. And the other 40% are going to be like, ha, we won. <laughs> you nerds, go home. We're in charge now. That's what's going to be happening. And against that, Christians can shine brightly. In fact, we're called to shine brightly, church. That's who we are supposed to be. 
And so that's what I want to encourage us to do. What we're going to do this morning is, um, and, and you could be the cause of political disruption or discipleship disruption, or you could be the effect of it, but, but I, what I want to do this morning is talk about the th- one thing Jesus said and then kind of unwrap that a little bit with one of, something that one of his apostles said in relation to that. So I think this will be helpful. Now, some of you are like, why, why in the world? Shouldn't we just avoid all of this? We should just avoid. Patrick, I would have rather come this morning and heard a sermon on uh, Habakkuk than a sermon on politics. Seriously, I'm sick of politics. Can you just pre... I mean, seriously, a boring sermon. Steve was so kind to say that this is the best sermon you'll hear in this building. Maybe I'll grant him that this is the best sermon you'll hear in November so far, but it's only November 1st. You guys have only been awake for about two hours, so it's going to get better from there. But I think a lot of you would like, I would listen to whatever sermon about anything else. I'm just sick of politics. I'm sick of it, sick of it, sick of it. But here, let me tell you, we do not advance the cause of Christ by avoiding tough conversations. And if politics is a threat to us and to our church and to our discipleship, then it is our responsibility to call it out and not ignore it and not leave it alone. In Scripture, Scripture talks about it. I'm not going to read any political quotes this morning. I'm going to read Scripture. Scripture addresses this topic. If we're truly interested in a better country here, then we must be better citizens of another country. You're familiar with the phrase the kingdom, as Jesus used it, right, in the Gospels, the kingdom. He came preaching the kingdom. The kingdom is near. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom. He used this phrase constantly. Now, when we hear that phrase, what we hear is, oh, he's speaking of a way of life. We hear it as a metaphor. It's a way of following Jesus. It's the church. It's a way of engaging the world around us. It's a way of being Christ-like. It's a way of discipleship. So we hear the phrase kingdom, and we hear it as a metaphor. But when Jesus spoke the word kingdom in the first century, they did not hear it as a metaphor because they lived in a kingdom. They lived in the kingdom of Rome. And so When Jesus says, oh, I'm here to bring the kingdom, people were like, oh, there's already a kingdom, and the Romans are going to have something to say about that. They're not going to be real happy about you claiming to be king, bringing another kingdom. That's not going to go over really well. In fact, you don't have any military. You don't have anybody on your side. You got 12 guys. I mean, really, is this going to do anything? But it's still a subversive statement, what he's saying. I'm bringing a kingdom. Now, a lot of people in the first century, a lot of Hebrew people, even though they didn't like the fact that they were in the kingdom of Rome, they had figured out how to prioritize the kingdom of Rome. They had thought, think about this, they, tax collectors, for example, they had thought, I can create financial well-being and stability in my life for myself and my family if I put first the kingdom of Rome and just go along with them for tax purposes and, you know, I can, I can create stability. People like the religious leaders said, I can get political influence and power if I put the kingdom of Rome first. That's what they were thinking. I can be in a position of power because Rome had the power and I can be part of that if I put the kingdom of Rome first. 
In fact, uh, in John 19, right before Jesus was crucified, you remember the story? Pilate, who was the Roman governor, he was the representative of Roman power in the area. He's interrogating Jesus. He doesn't think Jesus is a threat, but this whole crowd seems to be pretty riled up about it. And so he brings Jesus out on the portico or whatever, and he says, okay, guys, are you sure? Do you want me to crucify your king? And, of course, he's being a little sarcastic. You want me to crucify your king, this guy's king? He doesn't have an army. He doesn't have anything. He doesn't have a platform. He doesn't have a plan nothing you want me to crucify this guy and of course he's expecting the crowd to say no not at all that guy is really no threat but what does the crowd say what does the crowd say because they want political power and influence they say we have no king but the king of rome caesar we have no king what are they doing they're saying we are going to put rome first because if we put the kingdom of rome first then we'll have everything that we want and need So when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, put or seek the kingdom of God first, put my kingdom first, and then what did he say? He says, all those things that you worry about, like your health, your clothing, your financial stability, all those things will be added to you if you what? You put my kingdom first. Let's uh, let's say the statement, the conclusion in a different way. If you truly long for a better country here, then you must be a better citizen of the kingdom. If you truly want a better America, if that's, if that's something you care about, then you must be a better citizen of the kingdom. I want to give you three truths as we finish up our time here. I say finish up about halfway through. Three truths that we must hold at the intersection of faith and politics. These aren't going to be anything new. I'm not going to tell you anything where you're like, whoa, I'd never thought about that before. These are things we should know, but these are things that we need to be reminded of in an age like ours. Number one, disciples, as disciples, we are devoted to a different kingdom. We are devoted to a different kingdom. Those of you that have lived overseas or maybe had an extended stay in a foreign country, you probably had kind of a strange experience where that country in which you're living or staying or residing, there's all these things that are happening in that country. There's all this political news. There's all this breaking news. And it doesn't really phase you that much. You're way more interested in what's happening thousands of miles back home because something about your, your, your sense of well-being, even though it doesn't affect your day-to-day life, there's something about where you're heart is that is tied to where you are a citizen of my uh, my dad when we lived in taiwan this is of course probably the early early 90s um, my dad would order the oregonian which is the newspaper from portland oregon and he would have it shipped from portland oregon to taiwan and it took about four weeks for the sunday newspaper to get there four weeks four weeks And you are reading four-week-old breaking news. And it's still interesting because that is where you are invested. Of course, I liked it because there was the big Sunday comic section in here. But it mattered because you are invested in what is happening, even if it's four weeks old. Because that is where your sense of of contentment and well-being is tied to. I I do want to share this kind of off-topic, but just real quickly. We were having um, dinner with a family that we knew when we lived in Taiwan a while back. And, of course, they had kids close to my age. And so us kids, we would just run around, you know, we'd just do whatever, just run around wherever. And one of the locals asked 
my parents and this other set of parents like, hey, why do you let your kids just run around? And they said, well, it's so safe here in Taiwan. It's so safe and we just don't have to worry about any danger or any crime. It's just so safe. And the local told them, it's not safe. You just can't read the newspaper. You don't know about all the terrible things that are happening. I wonder if there's a lesson there. Maybe, maybe we should take in a little bit less news. Of course, the newspaper was in Chinese, so even if we wanted to read it, we couldn't. We are devoted to a different kingdom. We work in this country. We pay taxes in this country. It's okay to follow the politics of this country, but this isn't where our ultimate devotion lies. It shouldn't be. If it is, then we've got some rewiring to do. I want you to check out 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. This is Peter, of course, an apostle of Jesus. He heard these words. Peter, you get the impression, was a pretty political guy. You get the impression that Peter maybe listened to a lot of talk radio or some podcasts. You get the impression that Peter was kind of tuned into the politics of the day because he did some things that were pretty drastic. Uh, he had some pretty drastic opinions. But when he wrote this letter in 1 Peter, uh, he wrote chapter 2, verses 11. He had kind of come around. He said, dear friends, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And he's going to get into something here that I think is so fascinating, but I want you to see. We'll wait just a second. But you are foreigners and exiles. When we read the news of this country that we are residing in for a little while, our, 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 our evaluation of that news should be like, does this make me able to further the kingdom of God? Does this news open up more opportunities for people to know Jesus Christ? How would a disciple think about this? When we lived in Taiwan, it mattered, the local referendums on whatever, it mattered those things, but those things mattered insofar as they allowed my parents and others to do their work as missionaries in that country. Because that's what we are. We are not citizens of this country. We're missionaries here and now. But our devotion is to a different kingdom. It's so important that we keep that in mind. Every time you see breaking news on your phone, we are, we are citizens of a different kingdom. I suspect that all of us would say, of course, of course my faith informs my politics. That is why I vote this way. That is why I vote that way. Of course. But listen to what people actually say as the substance of their political perspective. It's not often, you know, I was reading the Sermon on the Mount, and it just made me think about this ballot initiative and, and how a Christian should think. It's not, it's not that. What they read is, like, I saw this video on Facebook. Man, Candace Owens, she just nailed it. I was listening to Ben Shapiro. I was listening to a podcast, Pod Save America, guys. Man, they just really, that, those are the things they talk about. And, and this is, it's fine. Listen to all that stuff, whatever. I'm not telling you what to not watch or read, but there should be a short, straight line between your political point of view and your Bible. We've got to stop letting all these other influences that don't have the same allegiances that we have dictate what we believe and what we think and how we behave. We are citizens. We are devoted to a different kingdom. Secondly, our political engagement must reflect kingdom values. Our political engagement must reflect kingdom values. I think you might think you know where I'm going, but I hope you don't. Those of you that like sports, maybe you like, if you like team sports, if you played them or you had a child in team sports, it could be professional, it could be amateur. Team sports always have a referee. 
I always have a referee. And in the history, this is kind of amazing when you think about it. It says something about human nature. In the history of professional football or basketball or hockey or baseball, has there ever been a situation in which a referee didn't need to call a foul? Do you think that's ever happened? Has it ever happened that a referee has not had to like, okay, you're, you're out of line, you've messed up, and you need to, you're not playing by the rules? I don't know. Maybe that says something about human nature. But if you've watched enough professional sports, or if you've had kids in professional sports, if you've played professional sports, or not professional, that would be awesome, but if you played sports in high school or whatever, if you, you've had this situation happen where like one player, there's like this dirty player, and he does something mean, or you know, he punches, or he elbows, or whatever, and then the other player has finally had enough, and then he strikes back. And what happens is the ref doesn't see the dirty player. He doesn't see that elbow. He doesn't see that dirty play. But he sees the person who strikes back, and then that person gets, you know, the call. And he always sees the second guy. And, of course, the, the second guy is, like, righteously indignant. I've been putting up with this all game. Of course I had to punch him back because he was doing this thing to me. But the ref only sees the second guy. This is one of the things that happens in politics, and it's just kind of crazy to me that we do this, but we get so frustrated with the other side. They're name-calling. They're just a, you know, they're just, they fear, they just push and push and push, and finally, yeah, on Facebook, I called, I called that person a loser, but it's because they did all these things first. They did all these things first to me. They're the ones that started it. Both sides of the political spectrum think the other side is playing dirty, and it makes it feel like it's okay to respond in kind. There's this really cool story in the book of Acts, chapter 23. It's the Apostle Paul. He knows that Jerusalem is ground zero for danger for the Christian. He knows he should not go to Jerusalem if he wants to continue living a free and normal life. And so he says, you know what, i got to go to Jerusalem because i got to teach people about Jesus there too. So he goes to Jerusalem. He gets arrested immediately. He gets dragged in front of the religious council who have, who have pledged their allegiance to the kingdom of Rome. And he's there in front of the council and he's explaining them. It's an opportunity to witness. It's kind of cool what he does. But he's explaining to them about Jesus. And he gets to the end of the statement and he says, you know what? I have lived in all good conscience that my life is dedicated to God up to this point. Now, that really made the religious council upset because they were like, this guy does not get it. He is wreaking havoc. He is tearing down our faith and our traditions. And so there was a high priest, and he's up there residing. You know, he's got his robe. He's got his hat or whatever. He's up there residing, and he's, he commands somebody standing next to Paul, slap that guy on the mouth. And so the person standing next to Paul that's, I don't know, got him in shackles or whatever, slaps Paul on the mouth. Well, Paul gets upset. Paul gets upset. Now, we would too. And he looks at that guy in the robe and the pointy hat, and he says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. I don't think it's a very good insult. I think Paul could have done better. But, you know, kind of when you're in the moment, it's just the way it is. And he was pointing out that the, this person was being hypocritical, that he had commanded that Paul be struck, which was in opposition to the law. You are a whitewashed wall. You're trying to bring the law down on me, and you're violating the law in commanding me to be struck. And one of the guys next to him, we don't know who it was, the Bible doesn't say, said, you can't talk like that to that guy. That's the high priest. Now, what we want Paul to say is, I don't care who that guy is. He's a silly man in a silly hat. He's a hypocrite. He's a whitewashed wall. I don't care who he is. That's what we want Paul to say. But you know what Paul says? Paul immediately, immediately and by the way, I don't know if you've got anger. Anger, there's some momentum. There's some inertia to anger. It kind of takes a while to stop the anger train. But Paul somehow immediately stops and he says, Brothers, 
I'm so sorry. I did not realize that was the high priest. And just like Exodus 22 says, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I'm sorry. I apologize. Now, Paul was right. Paul was right. But Paul knew something that we seem to forget, especially when it comes to politics. You have to be, being right is not enough. It matters how you're right. It matters the way you're right. It's not enough to be right. You have to be right in the right way. Read the next few verses in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Check this out. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. I don't like that, but he doesn't qualify. I mean, he's talking about managers at work too, right? That falls under human authority, not just, you know, your, your, your governor or your congressperson or whoever. Or you, but he goes on. Whether it's to the emperor as the supreme authority, the emperor, Peter, what are you talking about? The emperor, the kingdom of Rome as the supreme authority? What are you talking about? He says submit to that authority. Or to governors who are sent by him, the emperor, to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's, listen, listen, we, all, we want to know what God's will. For it is God's will that by doing good, we silence this ignorant talk of foolish how do we silence the ignorant talk of foolish people? Well, I light them up on Facebook. I comment back. I show them that video that really persuaded me, and that'll show them. I read them an excerpt from that book that I've been reading. That's how I silence the talk of foolish people. And if I really want to drive my point home, then I do it in all caps. That's how I silence the talk of foolish people, because as we all know, your argument isn't as persuasive as it can be unless it's in all caps. <laughs> I get all caps emails from you, Jerry, so I, you're always being persuasive. For it is God's will that by doing good, doing good, commenting on Facebook? No. Calling him names? No. Doing good. You should silence the talk of foolish people. Do you think your political opponent is bad and, not, and foolish and ignorant? Then how do you silence that? Doing good. Yelling at him? No. Getting mad? Getting angry? No. Doing good. Does my political engagement reflect the fruit of the Spirit? Do people sense my humility, my gentleness, and my kindness? If you are right but not kind, you are wrong. I wanted you to keep this in mind, especially when you think about politics. You guys, I know, you're all calm and rational people. But I just want you to know that when you're politically engaged with another human being... You are either talking to a disciple who deserves your kindness and patience and respect and dignity, or you are talking to a potential disciple who deserves your witness. Those are the only two categories. <laughs> There's no third category where you're talking to a, uh, an idiot and you can yell at them. There's, that's not a category that God gives us. It's just this, disciples or potential disciples. Finally, number three, kingdom power isn't authority, but service. I, th I think anything I've said so far, we can kind of all agree. I mean, I think most people agree, yeah, my devotion should be to another kingdom. My devotion is to Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I got to be kind. Yep, yep, yep. I'm, I'm with you. But I think this is the place where we start to, to, to get off the bus a little bit. Kingdom power isn't authority, but it's service. All right. I want to influence my country for better, right? Your political view is because you think that is the best view for your family, 
and for your children and for everyone else, right? Nobody holds a political view that they think, I really want to drive this country into the ground. This is going to be terrible for everybody, but I can't wait. Unless you're an anarchist, nobody has that perspective. You have a political view that you think will increase the well-being of everybody around you, yourself and everybody around you. And if you just have, a, if, if people who think like you are in power, then our country will be a better place. If people who think like, if we have power, then we have the power to control the way things should go. Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 27. This is Jesus, uh, his, uh, he had a couple of apostles, disciples, whose mother tried to, uh, you know, tried to make things better for them. So talk to Jesus like, hey, can I get my sons? I want them to have really good positions in this new administration. Can they be cabinet members or something? I mean, something good, Jesus. Can they be good? Again, they thought it was a kingdom of power. And so mom was thinking, I want the best for my children. Jesus, can they have nice positions? And so Jesus called them all together. And he's like, oh my goodness, I've been here for 20 chapters and you guys still don't get it. All right. Jesus called them together and he says, you know, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles, that kingdom of Rome, you know how they operate. The Gentiles lord it over them. So what matters to them is power and authority and status. That's what matters. I am, I have this rank. You must listen to me. This is the way. In fact, Rome had this whole thing, Pax, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and they enforced it through like this brutal violence. And they were like, this is the way to live. You must live like we and we are going, we do, and we are going to force you to live like we do. We're going to impose our sense of well-being on you. All right, sounds great. And Jesus was like, you know how they work. They're high officials, exercise authority over them. He's talking about power. But what does he say in verse 26? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great, and again, in terms of influence and power, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Here's the thing. Kingdom power is about willingly humbling ourselves and choosing a path of service. Now, in the abstract, that sounds easy. Like, we can sit here on Sunday morning in this room and we can be like, yes, I need to serve everybody. I will go serve people who disagree with me politically. It'll be wonderful. But in the moment when you actually are called to seek out somebody else's well-being over and above your own, it is hard. And I think the reason a lot of us don't do it is it is scary to do. It is scary to say that I'm going to seek their well-being maybe at the expense of my own. I think it's scary. I think that maybe we don't actually have a political problem in this country I think among Christians, we maybe have a fear problem, where if we were to actually do the things that Jesus is asking us to do, it would be hard, and it would be uncertain, and we would literally have to be putting our faith in Jesus for an outcome and not a political party. I think we're scared. Nobody wants to admit that they have fear, and I don't think anybody feels like they, they are operating completely out of fear. Nobody's like, yeah, I just let fear make all my decisions for me. Nobody does that. But fear is mixed up in all of this. And it, that boat is rocking on the sea. And we're just like, well, fear makes us want to just stabilize things. And if a political party or candidate comes into the picture and says, I'll fix everything for you, well, fear says, let's do that. And then sometimes it allows us to compromise in other areas that we shouldn't in order to achieve that stability. But fear, you know, fear only tells part of the truth, right? When you're operating out of fear, it only tells part of the truth. When you hear that bump in the night downstairs... Fear, fear tells you it's probably not your refrigerator cycling on. It's a serial killer, right? Fear, there is a bump. That's real. That happened. 
But it tells you that it's way worse probably than what it really is. Fear, fear exaggerates reality and, and, and to, to, to scare us. It short circuits our thinking. I actually, I don't, you know, who knows if this is true, somebody who knows smarter than me, but I read this week that our fear response happens in our amygdala, which is somewhere in here. It might not be even here, I don't know. Somewhere in your body, you have the amygdala. I think it's in your brain. And the fear response happens there. So when you get scared and you have that fight, flight, or freeze response, that's the amygdala saying, I'm going to be making all the decisions right now, all right? We're going to fight, we're going to fight, or we're going to freeze. That's all the decisions we have. That's your menu options. You have three choices, fight, flight, or freeze, when fear is operating the controls. But the problem is, is when we think about like our future, when we think about our hope, when we think about certainty, that those three options aren't very good. The fourth option needs to be faith. But if the amygdala is making controls, then we're like, oh, what's going to happen if the person I don't want to be president becomes president? And then, oh, it's going to be terrible, and I'm so upset, and I'm so worried, I'm so fearful, I've got so much work you got to get the decision-making back into your brain and out of the amygdala and have faith. Fight, flight, fear, faith, freeze, all other things that start with that, I guess. Fear, honestly, never creates the reaction God is looking for. And, and I know none of us are saying, yes, I'm just fearful, I'm scared, I'm nervous all the time. But it's in there. It's part of what's going on. I literally heard someone this week saying, I don't have fear, I don't have fear, I don't have any fear. And then they said, I'm just scared that the other party's going to win. Wait a second. You know scared, what scared means, right? I think they're synonymous. I think fear and scared are the same thing. I think you just don't want to admit you have fear. Our politics are disrupting our discipleship. What's the solution? If you truly long for a better country here, you must be a better citizen of a different kingdom. That's the solution. A Facebook friend uh, of mine in another state posted a picture of their mail-in ballot uh, with the caption, I placed my hope in the mail today. Place my hope in the mail. If your hope can fit in an envelope and you trust your hope to the United States Postal Service, if, if your hope requires 47 cents to send, then you've got your hope placed in the wrong thing. A person is not big enough, a candidate, a political party is not big enough to bear the weight of your hope. It's not big enough. In fact, there's only one place that is adequate for our hope. And we know that, Christians, we know that is in Jesus Christ. We know that is in the King of kings and Lord of lords. Your hope is not in a political outcome. Because even if your guy wins, you're going to be disappointed. Did you know that? Even if he wins, because he's lied to you. <laughs> I hate to break that to you. Did you not know that? Yeah. Your candidate lied to you. They said they were going to do some things they're not going to be able to do. They may be well-intentioned, but they're not going to be able to do it. You are a disciple. Your first allegiance, your first devotion is to another kingdom. Your engagement must reflect kingdom values. People need to be able to see the fruit of the Spirit in your political interactions. Your power comes through service. Your hope is in Christ. This Tuesday, I know we only have a couple days left, but this Tuesday we have a chance as Christians to shine. I don't think we've been doing a really great job, but I think we have a chance on Tuesday to shine. I think we have a chance to model where our faith actually is, and it's not in a political outcome. It never was. It never will be. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to be able to gather together like this. 
I know there's a lot of uncertainty in our lives, but God, we realize that there's just so much certainty that it just far outweighs the confusion and the fear. Lord, we know that you are real. We know that you have a hand in our lives. We know that you guide us to make decisions. We know that you empower us to be kind and gentle and loving. We know those truths. And so, God, we pray that we as disciples will hold tightly to what we know and not give into uncertainty. Lord, we trust that you will see us through. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>